Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Um, we're finishing up in Job. Job is traditionally be taken, and not incorrectly, <coughs> taken as dealing with human suffering and the seeming absence of God. However, there's a lot more to it than that. And as a matter of fact, I learned a lot going through the book myself. There is a decided parallel between Job and apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, which we also got a taste of today, um, in various aspects. Um, Job's uh, undeserved suffering uh, by Satan's hand. Um, Job is a type of Christ. Uh, in in that respect, um, and then looking forward to a future award and an abundant life, and we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, the vision at the beginning uh, is, well, the description, the story, is like a vision, like the vision at the beginning of Revelation. And I say all that to say I'm not going to say anything else about it. This is something I sort of just started discovering now. But there's always more. I've read the book of Job several times. But uh, with almost every book of the Bible, well, every book of the Bible, each time you read it, you learn something new. And I think there are affinities between Job and Revelation. And those of you who might want to work on a Ph.D. could, could probably make that into a dissertation. Uh, anyway, we are uh, right here in our movement through the story of Job. Last week we heard the speech of Elijah, and this is what he ended on. He actually anticipates the uh, coming of the Lord. He talks about God and a thunderstorm, and you get the idea that there might even be a thunderstorm in the story approaching on the horizon. He's literally talking about a storm coming up as he's lecturing Job uh, ad infinitum and ad nauseum. And so we can see in, in a lot of what the friends say, uh, there are truths. However, they are sometimes taken out of context and misapplied to the wrong person. That's the one of the other key lessons is that wisdom is... I'm hesitant to use the word situational, but circumstantial. It's the right words at the right time to the right person. Job was not a sinner. He was not suffering before his wickedness. And this is something that the friend's uh, rigid, structured understanding of the doctrine of retribution could not figure out. Their God was too small. So we're uh, right here. We're going to look at the rest of it. God answers Job. Uh, which will be uh, the longest part of our lesson. Job repents, and then finally in the epilogue, Job's restoration. And again, I'm going to be reading just excerpts, and I encourage you to, of course, read the whole book just to get a, a flavor of what's being said and done. 
So we'll look at Job, God answers Job, excuse me, and some of the things that God has to say. So starting in 38 verses 1 through 7, and I'll be jumping around uh, 38, 39, and 40. 38 verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is that this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Skipping over to verses 31 and 33. Can you bind the influences of the Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their answers or lead out the bear with her cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Moving over to chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Verse 9. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Verse 19. Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Verses 26 and 27. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. There's a process going through here, or a, or a, a movement, going from God's plan or architecture or blueprint for creation, going through the actual creation of the inanimate order and then the animate order from planning to execution to population. So out of the storm, the Lord, that is Yahweh, speaks to God. The author hasn't used Yahweh since the prologue, and now he uses it again because, again, he make, wants to make his readers, who were going to be Israelites and us, that there is one God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He and he alone is God. So this is what's called an, a theophany, an appearance of God, And it occurs in awesome natural phenomena in Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai and thunder and smoke and fire and also elsewhere in the Old Testament in in majestic natural phenomena. God manifests his presence this way before the incarnation in particular because as God tells Moses in Exodus, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Now, Job is going to say he has seen Yahweh, but we need to understand this in a, in a figurative and not a literal way. You know, like, I've seen the kind of stuff that's going on in Washington. I hate to be political, but if I say it that way, everybody will know what we mean. Well, I haven't seen Washington in, jeez, 
can't remember how long, but I haven't been there. I haven't actually seen anything, but I'm aware of it. So Job means I've, I've been directly confronted with God. Anyway, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So finite, sinful human beings do not have the capacity to behold God as he is in himself. As a matter of fact, even if we weren't sinners, we're finite. So we'll be able to live with the holy God. But we can't physically see a non-localizable, eternal, infinite, holy trinity. Who we will see is Jesus. Um, And we can see him and we will see him eternally. Um, for humans to try and see and approach a holy God would be like trying to look at the sun. Don't, don't look at the sun, by the way, particularly on a sunny day. Uh, but looking at it while you were standing on the sun, it's, it's like that. The storm or a voice or a vision at one and the same time both manifests God and veils the presence of God. We know through this phenomenon and the voice God is present but we also know that we cannot behold God face to face. So immediately the Lord challenges Job. Basically, who do you think you are, Job? He declares that in his questioning and complaint, Job has spoken in ignorance, which is true. And, and ignorance is not necessarily a sin. Now the Lord will question Job. And most of what goes on uh, in this appearance of God to Job is, is question after question after question after question after question with an occasional explanation of the question. Um, and there's a reason for this, and God is deliberately trying to lead Job to certain conclusions about himself and about God and about his situation. So God does not accuse Job of sin like Job's friends did. Job's friends spoke out of ignorance but also they turned on their friend for no reason other than their doctrine told them to. God addresses Job something like a stern teacher, and there are stern teachers, and we might not have loved them at the time, but perhaps that was good for us. Like a stern teacher would correct a student who has failed to understand an important lesson. God will use firmness, but he'll also use irony and humor. And you're not going to catch a lot of it in the excerpts I read, but if you read carefully and slowly, there's a lot of irony and even an occasional touch of humor. God will use irony, but also irony. God will use firmness, but also irony and humor to lead Job to see things God's way. So God will interrogate Job in two speeches. The first speech focuses on God's foundation and rule of the natural order, and we just read excerpts from that. The second speech focuses on God's rule of the moral order and his control over cosmic forces. Oh, I just did that, didn't I? So Job had questioned supervision of the you know, God's Job had questioned God's supervision of the universe, like you, you're, you have poor management skills, God. Um, not quite that flippant, but almost. Now God hurls question after question at him, making Job realize how extremely limited is his own knowledge of the structure of the universe. 
and the workings of nature. There's a certain class of physicists, I won't name names. Um, I pay attention both to serious physics and, and popularized physics. And there's a certain class of scientists, physicists, who really believes that uh, man's basically on top of the world. We understand the universe, maybe not quite yet, but we will in a few years. We'll have a theory of everything, commonly called a toe, or a general unified theory called a gut. Um, and I feel sometimes it would be useful for God to appear to them in a quite a big storm and let them know how much they really don't know about the universe. Um, there's a lot of hubris involved, though. Not all physicists and certainly not all scientists, but uh, particularly some of the popularizers. So the Lord is persuading Job as he is trying to persuade us that he created and rules the world wisely and that Job's suffering has not taken place outside God's good governance. This is one of the lessons that, that Job is being taught, that Job has not learned. The first speech ends with the Lord answering with a forceful question that implies Job's complaint risks becoming presumption and pride. Job really should not continue on this course. There are things we can keep doing to ourselves psychologically that can engender bitterness or pride or presumption. Since God has accused God, since God, Job has accused God, God now demands an answer from Job. Um, in verse one and two, I'll read it again. The Lord said to Job, "Who will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him." And then Job says this, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. So Job's steadfastly defended his own innocence. Uh, he said, no, it, it is not because of my sin that I suffer. Uh, and he, so he doesn't, he doesn't withdraw that complaint. Uh, his defense of his own innocence and complaint that God was treating him unjustly, however, had implied that God needed correction. God needs our correction. There is a certain class of atheists, whom I will not name. Um, there's one who said that... Uh, the God of the Old Testament is one of the most, you know, awful, ugly, horrible characters ever invented in uh, religious literature. Of course, he wasn't invented. Uh, and then there are others who, uh, even in small ways, like in intelligent design, supposedly the eye is badly designed. They've since discovered it isn't. But uh, And other ways that, that they actually believe they could correct God. Though he does not withdraw his previous complaint, Job's brief answer and his resolve to speak no further show that he is beginning to be willing to accept the correction that he imagined that the Almighty needed. And he realizes he was a little bit bold to speak like that. And now he is resolved he will speak no further. Let me read Job 46 through 14. God speaking. 
Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourselves? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. So, so God's saying to Job, well, if you think I'm doing such a poor job, then, then do it yourself. Uh, there was a movie, I'm not saying it was really great doctrinal exploration, but called Bruce Almighty. Uh, it was a Jim Carrey movie. Um, but it does introduce the question of uh, whether when we think we can do a better God, a better job than God, uh, have we really thought this through completely well? So the Lord, that is Yahweh, begins his second speech by rebuking Job for coming perilously close to discrediting God's justice and his rule of the universe. Job's whole attitude was questioning, not, not disbelief and not even really hard skepticism. But if he kept on his course, he would be headed in that direction. And Job is trying, God is trying to correct Job's course. If he continued on this course, he would be guilty of putting himself above God. Uh, The Lord doesn't accuse Job of sin, but he is pushing Job to give up his grievance and his headlong pursuit of self-justification which is something that many of us, well, all of us are engaged in some of the time and some of us are engaged in all of the time. I think Abraham Lincoln said that. To stay Job from his course, the Lord challenges Job to take up the mantle of king of the universe and crush the wicked himself. If Job can do that, Well, God will praise Job for being able to save himself. Ironically, of course, if Job could do that, well, he would not need the God he so desperately seeks. He would not need the help that he so desperately wants. Let me read Job 15 through 19 and into 41. Look at the behemoth. Behemoth is a creature... Uh, not just a uh, figurative expression for a large man here. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. Over in chapter 41, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? 
Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Skipping over to verse 10. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So the remainder of the second speech is taken up by these lengthy, those were teeny expert, I mean teeny excerpts uh, of lengthy descriptions, lengthy detailed descriptions of two great creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. That's a painting by William Blake. Uh, that's his uh, artist's imagination there, imagining God, Behemoth, and Leviathan. Um, there's been a lot of speculation of what these creatures actually represent. Um, there's, it seems to be equally divided to me. There is a group of scholars who say, well, these are just, you know, imaginative, fantastical descriptions of a crocodile and a hippopotamus, and that's obviously where Blake starts. There is, they are outliers, but there are a few who say, well, these were obviously descriptions of dinosaurs in the Bible. Um, that's not likely for a number of reasons, um, which I won't go into. I'll go into why they are what they are. Um, the other group, uh, which I side with, uh, is that these are descriptions of creatures that combine realistic detail with mythological references to fashion ferocious and humanly uncontrollable monsters. Now, I don't mean that the Bible teaches mythology. I mean that the author of Job borrowed the mythological motifs from the ancient Near East. This mythology of, of sea monsters that were, in fact, the forces of chaos that the other gods had to defeat to create the universe this mythology permeated the ancient Near East. There were other names, too, for these creatures. Uh, elsewhere in the Bible, Leviathan is used poetically to symbolize and illustrate the Lord's destruction of the enemies of God's people, such as Isaiah 27, verse 1. So Isaiah writes, <coughs> In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. Behemoth is the monster from the land, doesn't actually get a mention in the Bible at all, but he does make an appearance in the intertestamental, intertestamental apocalyptic, boy, that's easy for you to say, intertestamental apocalyptic book was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is of the genre of apocalypse. Think like the book of Revelation, only like the Bible compared to the Book of Mormon kind of thing. If you've ever read the Book of Mormon, it's clearly religious fiction. Um, of First Enoch. So Behemoth gets a mention there. Um, and it's interesting that in Revelation, though the names Leviathan and Behemoth do not occur, there is a beast from the land and a beast from the sea. The beast from the sea is the Antichrist, and the beast from the land is, in effect, 
the religious slash economic slash military alliance of humans who support the beast from the sea. So here in Job, these creatures are symbols that represent any creature or force, natural or spiritual, that asserts itself against God. So both the behemoth and the Leviathan are effortlessly controlled by God. He doesn't have to defeat them to either establish or control the universe. So this effort, effortless control of these creatures is, as uh, Old Testament scholar John Hartley puts it, an ancient way of affirming that Yahweh is the master of whatever force may lie behind Job's ordeal. There is nothing that lies out of the scope of God's sovereignty and control. Job eventually repents when he is apprised and accepts the verdict on how truly ignorant he really is. Um, And we'll talk about that, but let me read his brief repentance, chapter 42, starting with verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you. Now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Job doesn't confess any sin, and certainly not any of the sins his friends confused, uh, accused him of. But he does change his mind about God's justice and acknowledge that God is in complete control of his creation and that he rules in wisdom. He becomes convinced his complaint is misguided and his almost skepticism is unwarranted. Job repented in the sense that he changed his mind. Um, In the New Testament, the word repent is usually metanoeo, which literally means to change your mind. Um, Not in the Hebrew does that word appear, but when Job is translated to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Christ, and it's the one Paul usually refers to, they use the word metanoeo here, and it means that Job had a change of mind about his understanding of God and God's rule of his creation. So he repented in the sense that he changed his mind about God being his enemy or abandoning him or being unjust and not judging the wicked. He, realized that he realizes that he has spoken in ignorance and from his severe human limitations. And I think that's a useful thing for all of us to realize, no matter how much you think you don't know about the Bible or how much you think you do know, that we know, I think I used the figure before, um, God and the knowledge of God are like a vast ocean stretching before us and our knowledge of God 
is that which a little child knows by dipping his feet in the water that splashes up on the beach. So in effect, Job confesses that his God has been too small. Uh, This is John Alden, who's another Old Testament scholar who mentions that. Now, this refers back to a book, Your God is Too Small, and I couldn't help but mention this. This is by J.B. Phillips. This is a copy I've had since I was in college. Um, This was written 60 years ago by J.B. Phillips, who was an Anglican theologian. And in this book, uh, Phillips notes several misconceptions about God that people latch on to, such as cosmic policemen. I won't explain these, but you'll catch something from the description. Parental hangover. Grand old man. Uh, Second-hand God. Now, he doesn't have the title Santa Claus God, but one of his descriptions of misconceptions about God really fits that, and and so forth. Uh, This is a very good book. Um, It's still in print, as very good books often are. And it's one of the two books, the other being Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, that I think every Christian should read. Uh, and read more than once. You know, as a matter of fact, reading that one comment on it made me want to dig it out and read it again. Uh, we, in some sense, always our conception of God is too small. Now, I think in Job's case, his misconception of God could be called the inconsistent God. I think a lot of us have that view of God. Because Job believed that God did not unfailingly uphold justice and punish the wicked. I mean, that was the plan, but... God neglected it at times, or so Job was beginning to think. At least God did not unfailingly uphold it according to a strict law of retribution executed in this lifetime. And remember, Job started out with that knowledge. That's what he believed too. He had the same worldview his friends had at the beginning, but he already knew he was an exception. So before his ordeal, Job had heard about God from received tradition and community ritual and celebration. Now, I'm not knocking received tradition and community ritual and celebration, but something isn't true just because we've always done it that way and because we've always heard it that way. There are certain popular Christian Doctrines, I'll call them, although I'll have to use scare quotes on the doctrines. I won't mention any of them right now. That are really based simply on being passed down from hand to mouth and pastor to congregation that are really not from closely investigated (coughs) decisions from from the Bible. Um, And a strict law of retribution executed in this lifetime is one of those things. We all know sometimes the wicked do prosper. Uh, Job and perhaps his friends and his community might be forgiven more since they didn't actually have a Bible. They only had the tradition. We, on the other hand, should know better. But the tradition and the community had nurtured his faith and fed his zeal. That's what a community is supposed to do. But now that he has seen God, he has a deeper knowledge. He confesses his own worthiness and he receives a deepened relationship with God Excuse me, because of his willingness to at least uh, expand upon his tradition. Finally, and speaking of finally, 
Uh, what time do we have? I'm sorry, what? Okay, I'm almost done. Does anybody need to leave? Seriously. Um, so let me read the last section we're going to read. Uh, chapter 42, starting with verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and you will deal, he will, and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told him, and the Lord accepted God's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. Verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years he saw his children and their grandchildren to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. So the Lord, first of all, condemns the friends for speaking falsely and commends Job for speaking rightly. Well, what did the friends get wrong? Well, we've already discussed that uh, at length. What Job got right was speaking honestly from the heart. Now, God had to be stern with him to keep him from taking the sense of a deep inner honesty and complaint and a knowledge that tradition was not sufficient, taking it too far and becoming bitter or prideful. So Job has received what he earnestly sought for, not blessing or reward, but the restoration of his relationship with God and the knowledge of God's presence in his life. That's what he wanted. That's one of the things he also spoke rightly. He wasn't looking for just material reward or even health per se. The reason why it bothered him so much was not only the psychic and physical pain, but the thought that God was his enemy now. So because of this, he willingly prays for the forgiveness of his friends who had treated him so badly. There's another small lesson to be learned right there. Love your enemies. The restoration and doubling of Job's fortune and family is, is God's free gift and not a reward for anything Job has done, not a reward for bearing under his suffering. Because, as we've said before, he wasn't exactly patient, at least not in the verbal sense. He did endure. Job's restoration is necessary to the story because it shows, as John Hartley puts it, the fear of Yahweh leads to abundant life. And there's an important qualification of that. The book of Job has already shown us that this abundant life is about a relationship with God and not a quid pro quo blessing of health and wealth. Um, that's a perversion of the gospel that is present with us till today and unfortunately expanding in some places. The abundant life uh, is what Jesus was talking about as the good shepherd when he told his disciples in the Gospel of John, 
I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's the fullness of life in the presence and fellowship of a holy God. Uh, a few conclusions, and I'll be brief. Um, won't go too much farther over time. So the Lord does not explain uh, himself or why this has happened to Job. And the book of Job itself does not offer an intellectual theodicy. I've got nothing against intellectual theodicy, but the book of Job is not one. Job is meant to help struggling in unbelievers, I mean struggling believers, not to persuade skeptics or the unconverted. Um, there are people, uh, there are some people who have genuine intellectual problems. And the problem of evil is often one of them. But for a lot of people, it's merely an excuse. They don't want God in their lives or they even hate God. And that's just a convenient excuse to latch on to. But some people do have genuine intellectual problems. They aren't going to get an answer from the book of Job intellectually. Sometimes we will know the cause of suffering. We sin, or in the contemporary vernacular, we make bad choices. Sometimes others sin and we suffer the consequences. We get old and our bodies break down. I hate that. But often we don't know why we suffer this side of heaven. And frankly, by the time we get to the kingdom of God, we won't care anyway. Uh, in joy or suffering, the most important thing in our life is our relationship to God, the fear of God. Humility and faith is the proper stance of God, and, and that's, it really is genuinely hard to accomplish. And fortunately, we also worship a forgiving God as well as a holy God. And sometimes uh, God may want to speak sternly to us to remind us that the fear of God is the proper stance toward God. So as Job suffered not because he sinned, but because he was upright, that is exactly why he suffered, because he wasn't a bad man. He suffered because he was a good man. So those who seek to follow Christ faithfully will also suffer persecution, as Paul said in 2 Timothy and Jesus promised his disciples at the Last Supper, in this world you're going to have trouble. If they hated me, they are also going to hate you. God's providence and protection does not exclude physical suffering. I think God does save us sometimes from physical suffering. Um, we probably don't suffer as much as, as we would without prayer and providence, but not always. We are not necessarily excluded from that. But it does mean that the eternal destiny of God's children is assured and certain. So we can trust that the world, human history, uh, and, the, and our individual lives all happen within the framework of God's wise, just, and compassionate plan. It's hard sometimes to grasp and to hold on to that, but we can with God's help. We can suffer faithfully if we know God is with us and our suffering does not escape his attention or his care. And thus endeth the lesson and the lessons and the semester. And we will pick up again in the fall with the book of Ecclesiastes. But does anybody have any questions? We are a bit over time. I think it's about 1150 something, 1152.
Is that right? Michael, yeah. Reading all the questions God had for him, I always thought they were very rhetorical. Rhetorical. I mean, obviously, Job did not do any of those things and had no wisdom or knowledge to do any of those things or any capability. So I think you kind of cleared that up. It's not really rhetorical. He's literally laying out what I've done, and you, you can't you, do it. You, you haven't done that. Um, they are rhetorical literarily in the sense that, of course, they expect no answer from Job. The answer from Job is the an- that we expect from Job is the one we get. Oh, man, I was really... Closes his mouth. He was speaking out of turn. Um, any other questions on that? Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Uh, is there any, I guess, historical distinction in how Job is thought of between Christian thought and Jewish thought? And, and my thought was just that, you know, at least we, ha- we know about the cross. We know the revel- revelatory promise of the destruction of Satan gets this started. So that, that we, we kind of see a, a, a justice in the future. But, uh, the, uh, you know, in, the, in Jewish thought, they wouldn't necessarily have that. Well, um, that's really a good question. And I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I know the full answer. The, one of the biggest difference between... Uh, even within Israel then, let alone in Job, they did not have a fully developed understanding of the afterlife or God's justice uh, after this life. Um, so, so that's changed in the, in the Jewish percep- perception of Job. Um, of course, they wouldn't find any, uh, a, a non-Christian Jew, a non-Messianic Jew, wouldn't find any typology of Christ in, in Judaism. But I would say some of their understanding of it is going to be quite similar. Now, how you come to a full relationship with God is going to be different. For uh, observant Jews, uh, it's going to be through law and the community. Uh, To be an observant Jew is to have a relationship with God and to be promised salvation. It's... It's not simply ethnicity. I mean, I could become a Jew if I want to be a proselyte, but but it, it is that Israel will be saved. Nobody else will. Um, so other than that, um, I admit I did not study any Jewish commentaries on I mean, there are actually good Jewish commentaries on the book of Job. Any other questions? Well, thank, thank you very much for coming and in the fall we'll thank you <laughs> we'll pick up with ecclesiastes meaningless meaningless everything is meaningless <laughs> <laughs>